90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you doing? Uh, great. Uh, just got back from an exhausting week in Baltimore at GSA, so uh, glad to be home, and it was super exciting. Saw a lot of good talks, a lot of good posters, had a great time. Yeah, every time that I heard from you, you were saying, my phone's about to die. I'll get back to you later. <laughs> <laughs> it's because I was looking stuff up the whole time. It was that uh, you would have been proud of me. I used the GSA app to plan all my meeting things, so that's why my phone phone died. Um, I won the GSA raffle. That was exciting. <laughs> oh, what did you win in the GSA raffle? Well, I won a Right in the Rain field book, which is great because I only have one page left in my field book, and then the Right in the Rain little pouch that goes along with it, which is also great because my pouch from field camp is about dead. So I'm super excited. It was like a $60 value, and so... Yay. Nice. <laughs> Very nice. Yep. Yeah, so did the app work pretty well? Um, it did. I, there was a few things that I think could have been improved, um, but as long as you spent the time with it the night before to sort of plan your day, I feel like it worked pretty well. I had a little calendar thing that would come up. Um, it was actually it was harder for the posters because you clicked on the poster and the – poster number was sort of hidden under a different menu so you couldn't exactly go there you had to click several times to find poster numbers but besides that it was pretty awesome nice yeah i'm i'm gonna try the agu app again this year but very tentatively because last year <laughs> all of my information that all of my meeting plans went away and i was very angry uh that happened to me when i used it too and so i was a little skeptical of this one um but it was super user friendly i liked it a lot better i don't know if just you know fewer people there internet was better or something it seemed to work really well so that was fun um and also why my phone died all the time <laughs> <laughs> i will say that i ate more crab than i ever have in my life in the last week though <laughs> <laughs> So being we our hotel and the convention center and everything was right on the harbor, the inner harbor in Baltimore. And yeah, lots of seafood was consumed. <laughs> Very nice. Uh-huh. And it was super hot there, actually. Um, I don't know, this El Nino thing. <laughs> yeah, funny. man, I've been I've been sweaty walking home from work the last couple of days. It's crazy. Yeah, 75 degrees in Baltimore on November 3rd. It was unbelievable, but... So that's been my week. I basically haven't breathed. I've just been on the go, um, but I'm pretty excited about the episode this week. Yeah, so this is episode 42, which is very special from our namesake, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. So if you haven't read the book or aren't familiar with the reference, we'll put some links for you in the show notes. But it turns out that 42 is the ultimate answer to the ultimate question. Which is life the universe everything so that's what we're going to talk about today we're going to talk about life the universe and everything so it should be a short <laughs> show right <laughs> the show will never end <laughs> thanks for thanks for tuning in 50 days later we might be done <laughs> yeah no. so i mean what how long did it take deep thought to come up with the answer it was a few million years right yeah it was i think it was something like 10 million years so we'll try to go a little bit shorter than that <laughs> yeah and 
I think what we can kind of view this as is an extended Fun Paper Friday show. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, basically, when I was, I, I volunteered to research the life section, and um, I got into a little bit of a hole myself, because, I mean, what are you going to say when you're charged with talking about life? Hey, you weren't stuck with everything, so. (laughs) (laughs) That is true. Um, So what I decided to talk about was basically how life began on Earth. I mean, not how, because we don't know how, but in terms of geologically speaking, when did it happen and what did these things look like? Yeah, and so this is something that you're much more familiar with being a... uh, you know, boots on the ground geologist as compared to a uh, code monkey like me. (laughs) You said it. Um, (laughs) That is true. Uh, So this is sort of like one of my favorite lectures to give. And I give it at the end of my intro geology classes. And it's kind of tying the whole geologic time scale together. It's something that I make them, you know, memorize from the very first day. But this is the beginning part of the geologic time scale that we don't talk a whole lot about. Um, and that starts with the Hadean Eon. And this is one of the eras that I really like because, well, though we don't know much about it since it's, you know, billions of years ago, we don't really have to because we know that we're getting slammed by huge rock all the time and that things are really bad. <laughs> Bad enough that they named this eon the Hadean, which actually means hell-like. And there are some awesome... I encourage you to Google image search Hadean because there's some cool reconstructions of what we think the Earth looked like. But just like you said, John, it was pretty bad. Um, (laughs) (laughs) We were still molten until about 4.4 giga anna. So, you know, the first 0.2 billion years in our history we were just this molten ball of volcanoes spewing stuff uh the late heavy bombardment was going on so we were getting pummeled by asteroids and comets and other pieces that were still floating around in our celestial neighborhood and most importantly when we're talking about life we had a really weird atmosphere at this time yeah and so i actually just googled Uh, those pictures you were talking about. (laughs) And it's even worse than I thought. I mean, the moon looks like the Death Star, and everything is uh, liquid rock. So Uh it's a little bit like the uh, Seven Eves scenario. Uh, That's exactly how... (laughs) Yes, it's like Seven Eves in reverse, because the moon at that time... Well, we got the moon during this time, right? A really... A Mars-side bolide is what hit us. And it spewed a whole bunch of stuff off, and that coalesced into an orbit around us, which then coalesced eventually into our moon. Right. So. So, late heavy bombardment, we're getting slammed, we have this really strange atmosphere, and we don't know much about it because there aren't any rocks, right? Uh, right, exactly. Um, we have guesses about what we think, say, the atmosphere looked like. The atmosphere... And the history of the atmosphere through geologic time is super hard for us to understand. And we sort of tie that to, you know, maybe life and what was happening in the oceans where life first started. But we had this dense ammonia, sulfur dioxide, methane atmosphere, lots of stuff hitting us. And it wasn't until about 3.85 
billion years ago. And those are about the oldest surface rocks that we have. Um, and we started to calm down. And we started to get into the Archean Eon, which means the beginning. So this is where we have rocks. Plate tectonics starts around this time. Now the planet kind of looks like something we're familiar with. So yeah, the planet's starting to be a little bit recognizable, and it's time for life to start up, which was about 3.2 billion years ago. Right, exactly. Uh, there's a lot of fight about this. I, I will give the disclaimer for both of us that neither one of us are paleontologists, so... <laughs> yes, is and just... what is, you know, point, uh, 2.3 billion years between friends, right? Exactly. Exactly. So as you can imagine, this first life, the first what we would call undisputable fossils, happened around 3.2 billion years old. And obviously, they're bacteria, right? Right. And they had to live in really harsh environments, so now we'd probably call them extremophiles. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely, they're extremophiles. Because, and yeah, we're starting to make some cratons, but that's about it. And the Earth's still pretty hot. And, you know, we're still getting some meteorites and everything going on. So these bacteria that we think they were probably these thermophilic guys associated with volcanic vents deep in the ocean, which we know there's a lot of extremophiles down there today in that environment. Yeah, and we'll link in some video of modern volcanic vents. Uh, you know, there's been lots of video from Alvin and other submersibles that's pretty neat to see. Oh, yeah, because there are very specific animals that only live on, like, one black smoker in the o in the ocean. Yeah. Yeah, it's really interesting. So this is probably where the first life came from. Um, we know that by the end of the Archean that photosynthesis was going on. Not plants. This is all still bacteria. But the one that most people are familiar with, and even you, John, know about is... Stromatolites. Stromatolites, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so these are just kind of layers in the rock now, it looks like anyway, but they're not layers of quartz or anything like that. They're layers of bacteria. Right. So stromatolites first appear around 3.2 billion years ago. Um, and so these are big fossil structures. And stromatolites are really cool because they're, they're basically algal mats and sediment that layer together. So these things form in really shallow water, and it's just like you would see an algal mat today. So as the tide comes in, though, sediment comes in, and it gets deposited on top of this layer of cyanobacteria. And then, because they need to see the sunlight, they grow up through the sediment, and basically they fix the sediment there, and then the cycle starts all over again. So you get these big mounds, and they're still around today, actually. Yeah, so there's a link in the show notes uh, to some stromatolites of Shark Bay in Australia. And uh, yeah, it's exactly what you would expect, I think, from looking at the geologic record. <laughs> exactly. Um, these, are, these are really cool. You find them all over the place. Um, there's some really old ones that are up in, say, um, if you've ever been to Glacier National Park, there's some really old stromatolites that are in those rocks up there. Um, associated there, the belt supergroup is a, you know, a couple billion years old, and so they're really neat to see. They're these big heads of core or big heads of algae with sediment. They look just like what's forming today. So it's a perfect example of uniformitarianism at work, <laughs> so, which is always nice. Oh yeah. <laughs> 
So we've got stromatolites. We're getting basic life going on the planet. Uh, we're kickstarting it, uh, which also happens in Hitchhiker's Guide, <laughs> just a little fast. Uh, so <laughs> then we kind of have a period of not a lot exciting going on. Exactly. I know we've talked about this before when we talked about the geologic time scale, but you've got to think about this first part of the Earth, you know, from 4.57 billion years to when we have what we call the Cambrian explosion. I mean, the Cambrian explosion's one of the big deals in geologic time. The Cambrian started 542 million years ago. And think of all that time between those first little stromatolites 3.2 billion years ago till where we start to get multicellular life 542 million years ago. That's an unfathomable amount of time where not a lot was happening in terms of life branching out. And once again, if you're a paleontologist, we know that not, that it is not the case that nothing happened, but just nothing <laughs> that we understand happened. Exactly. Okay, that's so true. Don't yell at me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but the Cambrian explosion is one of those really cool things where a bunch of stuff starts to happen that's exciting for everybody. Um, the, the beginning of the Cambrian marks the start of the Phanerozoic. Uh, the start of the Paleozoic as well, and this large evolutionary event took place where we started to make some other really cool animals, a lot of armored animals, so therefore we preserved a lot more because they had hard parts, which are much easier to preserve. Yeah, so really complex multicellular life forms started to show up, and uh, some of them are pretty weird. <laughs> yeah, so there's a really cool link in the show notes to... Um, a Cambrian creatures sort of <laughs> slideshow about some of the weird things that lived in the ocean at this time. Um, the Cambrian is super well studied. There's even a Friends of the Cambrian mixer at GSA, which I always think is pretty funny. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but these things are really crazy looking. Yeah, I mean, they look like things that, you know, a young kid might draw that are almost monsters <laughs> yes yes but they're real it's kind of terrifying um so all this like multicellular stuff and then we start to get like author arthropods and then everyone's favorite trilobites happened around this time oh absolutely and <laughs> this is also the time where really we start getting geographically interesting as well because before this point, making a map of the world was pretty simple. There was one big hunk of land. <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. And that was Rodinia. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And also, just like you said, at this time, that's when Rodinia started to break apart. And you can think about how one big supercontinent is going to make ocean currents move versus now when you're starting to get a lot of smaller continents there's got to be a lot of different things happening in the ocean currents. And I don't know if that has to do with why we had this huge explosion, but it's something to think about. So it's not just life changing, but, you know, we've got some paleogeography happening as well as, you know, our atmosphere is obviously more hospitable at this time too, or else we probably wouldn't have developed ocean life. Yeah. So here we get this giant, uh, giant explosion of diversity, which later gets killed off. But we're not going to talk about that right now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, not yet. Um, so during that time, 
we're coming out of a glacial period at the end of the Proterozoic and the Precambrian. There was um, lots of glaciers, really cold all over. Now we don't have any ice on the Earth at this time, we think. And we, being North America, we were at low latitudes, we had lots of reefs. Um, the Burgess Shale is a really famous outcrop in Canada that has lots of these uh, Cambrian fossils. It's just a huge test bed of what life looked like back then. And we could do probably 20 shows on the Burgess Shale if we were paleontologists. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. And uh, I know since we've got a few things to get on in the show notes, you just said, we could keep going on this, but we should stop here. (laughs) I did. I originally thought we would talk about the Cambrian explosion, but that's a, I mean, that's a big topic that we could always talk about. I'm, I am also very interested in sort of these first beginnings. Um, Some of my research has to do with the late Proterozoic and I really like the pre-Cambrian. I think it's very interesting just because it's even more of a detective story because we know so little about it. A lot of these rocks have already been recycled. Um, There's just a lot of mysteries that I think are locked in some of these pre-Cambrian rocks. And so that's kind of cool to think about how long ago that really was. We think the Cambrian was a long time ago, but this was, you know, four times as long. So it was a weird time in our little Earth's history until we got to the Cambrian, which was even weirder. And when you go to this, <laughs> you must go to this um, slideshow of these little sea life things. And especially if you have kids, show them. They're terrifying. I'm sure some kids will have <laughs> nightmares about this. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> but we're going to talk about not just life. What's next? The universe. And uh, this is even a bigger topic than life. <laughs> Yes. Um, (laughs) That one was hard to even narrow down to something to talk about, really. (laughs) I mean, I guess the beginning of the universe, the beginning is a good place to start any story. And just like the beginning of the Earth, uh, there are more questions than answers. Man, there are. I love how, and like when I teach it for sure, I'm like, okay, in the beginning, the Big Bang, there was this thing that happened. We don't know much about it. In fact, as I research this, we don't even know physics to make it happen, how we think it happened, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, there are people that devote their entire careers to studying what happened in the first, you know, couple seconds or less. Right. Of the universe's existence. And, well, that's just, to me, a mind-boggling thing. But we have some idea that it happened a long time before the earth was around so we're looking well obviously so we're looking at you know 14 billion years back yeah even harder to fathom than the hadian really yeah <laughs> but what talk we... about back to the future <laughs> um so what happened at t equals zero you know that's that's the well 42 million dollar question right um maybe the answer to life the universe and everything (laughs) yes what we think now though is that there was this singularity where only energy existed and then we got out of control (laughs) and then eventually that energy some of it turned into mass and we started getting uh, some of the compounds well some of the elements not compounds Mm -hmm. Uh, that we have today, right? But not very many. Right, exactly. So only the light elements were actually, well, we think, were created from the Big Bang nucleosynthesis. Um, 
And then, and I love this because it just is a matter of scale. After you have the Big Bang and we get all of this mass and energy that got spewed out really, really fast, and it's still expanding, we think. Maybe not so now. Um, so still expanding out from the Big Bang. Then lots of tiny little Big Bangs started to happen. And what I mean by that is we started to create stars. Yes, so stellar nucleosynthesis. That's the word of the week. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I get my I get my classes with that one all the time. It's so much fun to say. And it's even cooler, like, every time I teach it, because I think, you know, there was this Big Bang, all this stuff got spewed out, but then little star creations where big balls of gas collapse in on themselves and then start going radioactive. I mean... Yeah, and so... That's where we start. Stars are what start building heavier elements, right? Right, exactly, because we started fusing together all these light elements, and then all the stuff that was left over are the heavier elements. And so there we start to make the elements that become the building blocks for what 10 billion years later is our solar system. And granted, even in relatively, I mean, well, our sun is not a huge star, it can't build very heavy elements. It takes absolutely massive stars and then their death to build uh, elements that are very high in the periodic table at all. Uh, right, exactly. So up through iron really is where we're going to die out at. So yeah, um, there's lots of weird stuff that happens lower, well, higher, I guess, on the periodic table that I is way above my pay grade. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm sure we'll talk about sometime because I know, you know, there's a big deal. You know, where did all the boron come from? Where did all these other elements come from, if not from these things? So um, it's a very interesting question, but we will leave it at stellonucleosynthesis made up through iron. Right. <laughs> and then the Earth was born. Um, <laughs> but there's a lot of really intense physics that goes into this, right? And so Einstein and theories of relativity are what help solve some of our questions about how we got here. But Einstein and relativity aren't everything, right? There's this other part of physics, the quantum mechanics part, and it's really hard. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you think that regular Newtonian mechanics are hard. Yes. <laughs> Ask anybody taking engineering physics too. <laughs> quantum mechanics is an incredible amount harder, and you have to use it when you get to things that are really fast uh, or things that are really small because Newtonian physics just breaks down, but it's still an approximation. Yeah. We do that a lot in science. <laughs> yes. Um, so while relativity sort of helped to outline how the Big Bang, what occurred at T equals 0.01 seconds, just like John said, relativity breaks down once you get to trying to pinpoint that pinpoint that singularity, no pun intended. Um, <laughs> but we just make an assumption. We just move forward with that saying, well, assuming that relativity holds, these are all of our assumptions. This is what the singularity was. But we still haven't been able to marry relativity and quantum mechanics together. There's a lot of new theories that are working on doing that. Um, but there's a new paper out that says, you know, maybe we're looking at it the wrong way. Yeah, so this is putting a different lens on and taking a new approach by starting to look at some of the early work in quantum mechanics. Right, so backstepping a little bit, 
taking some of those original quantum mechanics things and trying to, well, basically you just mess around with the equations, right? So you mess around with these equations and then try to poke them back into relativity and make it work. Uh, so these researchers, Ali and Das, um, wrote a letter, and it's published in Physics Letters B, and it, the paper's titled Cosmology from Quantum Potential. And so it's attempting to do this. It goes back um, and uses Bohmian trajectories and quantum mechanics and then plugging them into some relativistic equations to try to get at that model of what happened at t minus or t equals zero. And so what they found out was some interesting stuff. Yeah. And once again, this is a little bit above our pay mm -hmm. grade, but that's why we don't do <laughs> a, uh, <laughs> a quantum mechanics space science show. Uh, yes. <laughs> but, and this paper is long. We'll link it in. Uh, but one of the conclusions, right, was that there might not be an, there might not be a t equals zero. <laughs> yes, which is disturbing, right? Um, so when they tried to get these equations to work together, they got them to work by determining this correction factor. That's always my favorite part in science when you just plug this constant in that represents something, <laughs> and suddenly <laughs> your stuff all works. Um, but this correction factor. They plug it into the relativity equations. This is my minuscule understanding of this. Um, and it makes the quantum mechanics work. And the problem is, what does that correction factor represent? Well, it means that there wasn't a t equals zero. They see that there wasn't actually a singularity. And maybe we're not heading towards this big crunch, which a lot of people think we are. Like, we're expanding now, but we're going to crunch up together and do the Big Bang all over again. And it sort of presents... An interesting thought that that didn't have to happen now. They've sort of got the physics behind it, but that correction factor represents something really weird. True. And, I mean, I must admit, I I personally have a preference for something that's more cyclic because that's how everything else we observe works. <laughs> right, exactly. Man. And every, like, creation story or anything you ever read from any culture that's existed is nearly always cyclic. Um but this correction factor sort of makes sense because what it takes into account is this other thing that we can't really tell what it is in cosmology, which is dark matter, right? Yeah, and it's one of those things that was named like they saw it. We can't see it. We know it has to be there because of gravity. Dark matter. Exactly. So it's this thing that we can't see, but everything in the universe gets this pull exerted on them by stuff that we can't see and so therefore we can't say oh that gravity is pulling on it so we name the stuff dark matter and we only know it's there because it has gravitational effects on our matter <laughs> invisible matter um but we don't know what it is we don't know how to explain it but this correction factor might actually explain its existence so it's pretty cool <laughs> yeah and uh i mean like we said we've got the paper linked in it is the commitment to go through it, though. Uh, oh, yes, yes. <laughs> um, we'll also link in the um, article that summarizes this theory, <laughs> as well as um, some other sort of origin of the universe. Uh, some on Stephen Hawking's page, he has some transcripted lectures that are really good, so I would suggest that you should go there. Um, it also explores sort of culture's thoughts about the beginning of the universe in general and it's also a really interesting read when you want to talk about the universe 
Uh, yeah, absolutely. And we didn't have time to get in contact about using any of that material on the show. It has a huge copyright notice on it. Uh, so you'll have to read that one for yep, yourself. But you should go there. <laughs> so yes. go to that webpage <laughs> and do that. And all right. So, well, it hasn't taken 10 million years, but we've talked about life in the universe. What's everything? Oh, boy. So this could have been literally anything, <laughs> obviously. <laughs> and I did feel really bad because we've had a fun paper sitting in our queue for a very long time waiting for snow, <laughs> which we we did have some frozen precipitation fall out of the sky. And now, like you said, we're back to 75. But I don't think we can delay this one <laughs> Any longer. Hey, it officially snowed in Colorado. It's okay. <laughs> Snow. Yeah, there we yep. go. Uh, snowed in Flagstaff. We're we, good. We covered our bases. <laughs> yeah, we've seen snow. <laughs> so this fun paper comes from listener Angie, and she uh, wanted to share with us this uh, very interesting mechanical study on avalanches. I don't think we've got enough snow to make avalanches yet, but... <laughs> winter is coming <laughs> not yet but you know this was the one thing that i really did like about this paper is it's similar to what i do uh, in earthquake physics because you're talking about uh, stresses on these planes is the crack going to grow is the crack not going to grow and actually some of the lab work that's been done is very similar to what we do for reproducing earthquakes in the lab so it's neat to see that parallel and to think about something that. I really don't, but that actually causes a significant loss of life every year. Uh, right, exactly. Um, I I used to live in Denver. You know, we would ski all the time, and I will admit that I'm one of those people that buys the you know ski movies. Big fan, Blizzard of Oz, Warren Miller. They're really good. Um, but a lot of what you see in these ski movies are skiers coming down off these really steep slopes, and then this whole sort of pack of snow it's basically a slab will break off underneath them and then you know in these movies they always either get out of it or they're okay but these slab avalanches happen a lot and they're really devastating right and it actually is governed by a fracture process just like cracking a piece of plastic or rock or anything else uh, because the snow does get packed down and crystallographically grows together in some cases. Right. I thought this was really cool because, I mean, that fracture is just like a fault. It represents a plane of weakness in the snow. And so what happens is it just becomes decoupled, right? So you've got this slab. It becomes decoupled from the snow beneath it. But how it becomes decoupled is sort of up for debate, right? And that's what this paper is exploring. Right. And so they have to make uh, quite a few assumptions in their model, assuming things like the elastic modulus of the top block and the bottom block aren't that different. Uh, that's really important. That's actually what I spend a lot of time thinking about. But for this, it's probably not too bad of an approximation. And then they take uh, basic crack theory, calculating uh, crack energies and stress intensity factors, and produce this really nice model that says, well, if you have a skier that weighs average X amount uh, on skis distributing their weight over so much area, so on and so on, uh, they run this model and come to some surprising conclusions. 
the one that I found the most surprising was, would you think that the slope of the area has a significant effect on how hard it is to trigger a slab avalanche there? And I totally would. And that was what super surprised me as well. <laughs> because obviously they're investigating, you know, shallow slopes, steep slopes, because you would automatically think that you got a slab avalanche, the steeper the slope, sort of the more unstable it's going to be and the more frequently it happens. But from what I gathered, slope doesn't have a lot to do with it, right? Yeah, it's mostly about the uh, slope perpendicular force. And there's, I mean, granted, there is some small effect, but they show with their numerical model that it's so small for all practical purposes, you can ignore it. Yeah, that was super surprising. Um, what I thought was really cool about this paper, too, was because it wasn't just a numerical model. They actually went out and did field experiments because, obviously, you're not going to send somebody down a slope and hope there's an avalanche and then record it, right? Um, but they're... I mean, grad students are cheap. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> uh, 85% return rate. That's what I've, that's what I've heard. You got to have 85% of them come back. You're okay. Um, but they did this and I thought this was really cool being a field person. This was the part that I read most intently (laughs) and they went out on different slope angles and they basically carved out huge chunks of huge columns of snow and then put a ski on them and started tapping on them on the ski. Obviously this was way more precise than I'm making it sound. Um, and then recording how, the slabs would break off of those columns. And yeah, so I mean, this is called an extended column test. And basically, like you said, they take a saw (laughs) and make this thing and then they break it on that plane of weakness. But I don't think you said it's obviously a lot more precise (laughs) than what you were insinuating. I don't think that's necessarily true (laughs) because they make a note that they have to have the same person tapping and that they just increase the strength of the tap every 10 taps. <laughs> okay, you're right. <laughs> so I think it's a pretty good relative measure of things, but maybe not so much for absolute values. Yeah, that's probably true. Um, they did use, um, they basically took the dips of the snow and stuff and they had within one degree accuracy to test these things. And it's neat that they could couple those experiments with the model that they had, because it's such kind of a surprising result in the model. Yeah, you know, and I mean, there is another group that would be probably another fun paper we could do at some point that takes this extended column test on a miniature scale. So something like a five inch by five inch column that they manufacture in the laboratory. So they'll put down a layer of snow, heat it like the sun, melt it, fuse it, put down some more snow, and they'll build up a realistic snowpack and then shear it with an apparatus so they can actually measure what the normal force is, what the shear force is, and all of that. Uh, so this is just the field version of the laboratory right, test. Right, exactly. So either you can do all... Or, well, that said like a true experimentalist, the laboratory yes. is <laughs> the modeled version of real life. <laughs> I was going to point that out. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> well, that just belies <laughs> our different callings. That's pretty funny. <laughs> um, yeah, just tapping, or you can put it in a, you know, biaxial something or other. I'm, I'm a right. big fan exactly. of the tapping method. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so 
another thing that they pointed out was it's all about the like I said the surface perpendicular force and that one thing that you shouldn't do is ski very close together or huddle together to you know read a map and figure out where you're going to go next having multiple people on the slope doesn't really affect it as long as they're a few meters apart in fact it had pretty much no effect on it but if you were within a meter of each other you actually started uh, increasing the risk of an avalanche occurring dramatically right which as you can imagine if you're skiing in the backcountry where these happen you probably frequently get together to look at maps so that's a really interesting um observation yeah and i mean they said well, even though you can have a lot of people on the slope as long as they're far apart, maybe that's not the best idea because you don't want the avalanche to take out everybody if it happens. Right. So from a practical standpoint, that's that's one way to do it. But mathematically, yeah, you could, you could all be on there at once. Uh, they did say that obviously there are exceptions to this, like during a rescue or anything like that, but also avoiding anything that's an instantaneous load so, mm. or, or increasing your penetration depth. Uh, so using really narrow skis, falling over, oh. uh, which is all I would be doing, uh, <laughs> jumping, and then some ski terms that I don't really know anything <laughs> about them. Right. So you definitely, uh, so you definitely don't want to, you know, go off these ledges and that could be one thing because obviously that happens a lot, right? You're in this craggy terrain and you see what looks like this awesome jump and you just take it. But then when you fall onto this slope below, you're doing both of those things John said you shouldn't do, right? So you're increasing your your depth because you're going to fall into the snow because of the force of your body and then you're instantaneously loading the slope. So that's actually a pretty salient point if you're you know that good of a skier that you're hucking off these things so anyway yeah so uh, the only other thing that they mentioned that you can do is trying to take a wide stance obviously decreasing uh, the force per unit area and making sure that you have both skis loaded relatively evenly because what that actually does is increase the critical length and this is something that's a fracture mechanics tool they talk about it in the paper I don't want to go into great detail on it, but basically for a crack to become unstable, you have to get it to this critical length. Anything shorter than that, the crack can stop anytime at once and not continue growing. Once it gets longer than that critical length, the stiffness of the system is low enough mm. that you're done. The crack's going to propagate in an unstable manner and rupture the entire surface. Gotcha. So there's always that point. Uh, that's interesting because you would think that slope would have something to do with this then because at a higher angle, you're obviously going to be putting a lot more weight on you know, one ski than the other. So that's actually kind of interesting that you want to keep it as well, even as possible. So that might be a that might be a modeling versus life deal because ah. in the model i'm pretty sure that they applied you know a constant load mm -hmm. to the slopes and didn't really consider how the person would be standing on the slope right because if you stop on that slope you've obviously got a lot more a lot more weight on one ski than the other so huh well I've, real life is much more complicated that's why we model <laughs> 
Exactly. <laughs> so anyway, this this uh, this paper, which I don't think I mentioned, uh, was called Anti-Crack Model for Skier Triggering of Slab Avalanches, what we've been talking about, uh, will be linked in the show notes, and it's really worth going to check out. There is enough information in here to reproduce the model, if you so desired, but they have just about all the plots I can imagine. Uh, yes. And they have a and, and they have a picture of your favorite test with the, the big hunk of snow <laughs> yeah. in the ski. Yeah pretty awesome <laughs> um excellent uh some grad student had to had to go out and go skiing <laughs> exactly man this is where you have to really pick who you work with very carefully you know like you want to pick those guys and gals that study stuff in the ocean you got to go snorkeling or if you're a skier that studies snow mechanics yeah yeah, I mean, uh, we'll have to look and find something similar for uh, surfing and do a fun paper Friday <laughs> on surfing as well. But we'll have to wait until it's warm for right, that. Right, exactly. So with the first snow, we talked about these avalanches. This is actually a really, it's a very readable paper, even despite all the modeling. So I encourage you to take a look at it. Yes, and thankfully all, not all, but 90% of the derivations and things are in an appendix, so they don't make it look too terrifying until you get towards the end (laughs) those are my favorite (laughs) (laughs) yes well i think that is that's what i had for everything i don't know was there anything else you wanted to talk about on our our only episode 42 (laughs) that we'll ever get (laughs) it is true but i think we could probably you know recreate this for every multiple of 42 at least that's that's my thought going forward so there's plenty to talk about in the everything category (laughs) So 84, it's going to be twice as long? Exactly. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Uh, We heard the collective groan from everyone listening. From all five of you. (laughs) From all five, yes. (laughs) Well, if you have anything that you think we should talk about on episode 84 (laughs) or probably even next week's episode, you should send us some feedback. We really enjoy hearing from you, whether it's a fun paper or some comments, or if you're a paleontologist and want to tell us that we are absolutely horrible people for minimizing your field into 15 minutes. <laughs> so Shannon, how can they get a hold I'll of us? I'll give them your personal email to get a hold of that, you for that. But uh, <laughs> if you want to be nice to us, you can email us show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. Um, send us an audio comment. We'll play it on the air. Um, John is on Twitter at geo underscore Lehman. I'm at Shannon Doolin and we collectively are at don't panic geo. Yes. And I'm going to put a link in the show notes, but if you followed us on Twitter, you saw that we had our very own don't panic geocast pumpkin this year. (laughs) Uh, That was quite enterprising. I was very impressed by it. (laughs) Dremel tools, man. They they do the trick. (laughs) Excellent. Well, until next time, remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies.